This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to History Chatter. This is episode 2 of our small cast series. In the last episode, I was talking about a plan a plan for setting up an automobile manufacturing industry in India in 1935 the plan did not take off the british colonial government did not want the industry at the time it would seem the second world war came in the way but things started moving again by 1945 when the government set up a panel a panel for automobiles and tractors KC Mahindra was the chair of the panel. The principal objective of that panel was to suggest policies on how to manufacture automobiles in India and most importantly how to reduce imports of automobiles. To this end, the panel recommended a series of measures. One of those was a gradual rise in import duties on various components of an automobile. However, it also recommended duty-free import of some components which were not readily available in India at all. There's no clarity on what actions were taken by the government on those recommendations. Probably little or nothing was done on the report by way of a follow-up. But uh, of course the times were difficult, there were riots, there were independence coming up, there were the war far too many things really to occupy the attention of the governments the partition happened but things started gathering some momentum soon after independence the government sprang into action once again there was the industrial policy resolution in 1948 the resolution declared that automobiles and tractors as a sector were to be the subject to regulation and control by the government in 1949 the very next year it was announced that automobiles could be imported only in ckd condition ckd or completely knocked down means that only components could now be imported the automobile whether it is a passenger car or any other larger vehicle had to be assembled in india necessarily assembled in india in 1950 customs duty was in fact raised on some components which were now manufactured in india or would soon be manufactured in india the priority was simple The government was looking to set up an automobile industry in India in right earnest. It was now seen as one of the markers of self-reliance of the newly independent country. During the early 50s, passenger cars did not appear to be a priority for the government at all. It was certainly looking for autonomy. in the automobile manufacturing and import substitution but the need of the r was to grow more food which required mechanization of agriculture therefore 
the government encouraged the manufacture of high capacity diesel engines the vision of the intelligentsia about the automobile industry did not at all prioritize the passenger car the development of the automobile industry was seen as certainly seen as a stepping stone for industrial development of the country as a whole for instance there's this report in economic and political weekly in october 1952 the report offered two major reasons why a company like hindustan motors should be encouraged first the development of the industry is vital for both civilian and defense purposes so automobile sector had to be developed as a, some sort of a core sector for civilian and defense services second its growth would in turn lead to the development of ancillary industries downstream industries that is so this was then the yardstick through which the performance of the automobile companies was to be measured for instance uh, hindustan motors in 1952 announced that they would manufacture 1000 pieces of a 10 horsepower diesel engines in their calcutta factory every year the country imported 58000 diesel engines of all varieties in 1951 So this event that Hindustan Motors would now manufacture 1000 pieces of horsepower diesel engines uh, was seen as a contribution to the national cause by saving precious scarce foreign currency so a contemporary report observed that the country had been spending crores of foreign exchange for the import of various diesel entities and this new capacity of hindustan motors would lead to substantial savings on that count and yet hindustan motors initially did not make great progress it could not sell enough vehicles due to competition from a number of well established concerns with worldwide associations in fact It had to keep its factory closed between April and July 1952 since the dealers could not clear out the pending stock of vehicles. The automobile industry had been claiming protection from what it called unfair competition. The question was referred to the Tariff Commission. In 1953, acting on the recommendations of the Tariff Commission, The government of India terminated the activities of automobile assemblers. Um the automobile assemblers as in who did not have any manufacturing program. So for an automobile company to do business in India or to carry out manufacturing business in India or to carry out the sale of their cars in India, they had to set up some kind of a manufacturing base in India. that was the minimum condition an automobile company had to fulfill if it had to sell its cars in india but that was a game changer this decision by the government of india now this was indeed to encourage only those companies which had a genuine program for phased manufacture so in 1954 general motors and ford 
two of the largest exporters to India, decided to down their shutters rather than set up a manufacturing base in the country. They were gone. So by May 1956, the prospects of Hindustan Motors looked up. They decided to raise capital by issuing 5 lakhs cumulative convertible redeemable preference shares. They had already collected the necessary approval from the government. The directors were anticipating increased demand during the second plan period. The fresh capital was to be invested for an expansion of the operations, that is, to meet the heightened demand. Now, here, it may be useful to go a little back in time and recall the foundation of the automobile industry in India. If the war, the Second World War, had stalled the development of an indigenous automobile industry, something of which I've spoken in the first episode, it also helped it in other ways. Now, Hindustan Motors was set up in 1942, as a matter of fact, under the management of the Birla Brothers Private Limited. And Premier Automobiles were set up in 1944 under Aero Auto. The progress of the two companies was, of course, slow in the initial stages due to the intense competition from both old and new producers who were merely assemblers. Now, Hindustan Motors was also delayed because of the setting up of the factory really was delayed because of the partition, the imminence of partition as a result of which uh, it could not decide its location. Finally, it began its operations by assembling CKD vehicles, knocked down, completely knocked down vehicles in 1948. Now, Premier Automobile started in 1947. So at that time, Hindustan Motors was producing Stadbreaker trucks and buses. And Premier models were Dodge, DeSoto, and Fargo. By 1953, there were only 12 companies producing or assembling cars and commercial vehicles. Only one of them, one of these 12, that is Standard Motor Products of India, excluded commercial vehicle assembly or manufacture from its program. Of the remaining 11 firms, only four firms, Hindustan Motors, Premier, Automobile Products of India, and Ashok Motors, which later changed to Ashok Leyland, had drawn up a manufacturing program. And only two, that is Hindustan Motors and Premier Automobiles, took effective steps for the manufacture of certain components. That was 1953-54 and I've already referred to the decision that the Tariff Commission required all automobile companies now to have a compulsory manufacturing program. So in 1953, only five firms were recognized by the government as manufacturers. HML, Premier, SMPIL, FEIL and Ashok Motors and SMPIL had only a car program, standard motors I'm talking about. Finally, there were others too. 
The Tata Engineering and Locomotive Company or Telco was registered in 1945. It was to manufacture locomotives, boilers and other engineering products. But the automobile division of Telco started functioning in 1954. They walked out of a collaboration with Daimler-Benz of West Germany for manufacture of three to five ton diesel commercial vehicles. That was the early phase of Telco. They were yet to come into the passenger car segment that would happen later along the way. So they were to manufacture components and that began in 1955. Mahindra and Mahindra also came into being in 1945. At the time, it was the sole Indian representative of Kaiser Jeep Corporation USA and had a program for progressive manufacture. They began manufacture in 1955 with the Willis Jeep, a Jeep truck or with common engine, transmission and front and rear axles was licensed by the government in 1961. In 1965, Mahindra and Mahindra introduced a one-ton payload truck, which was called FC-150, and then discontinued the production of the Jeep truck. But there was another crisis on the wing. In 1957, shortage of foreign exchange forced the government of India to modify the approved manufacturing programs of the recognized manufacturers. Progressive indigenization now became absolutely unavoidable. So models like Hindustan Motors Tudbacker, which required a substantial outflow of foreign exchange, therefore had to be given up. Meanwhile, by 1959, Hindustan Motors was clearly leading the race of manufacturing the components of a car in India. It had just launched the legendary Ambassador in 1957 and imported components now amounted to only 21% of the sale price of the car. It was basically an Indianized version of Morris Oxford 3. That model, Morris Oxford 3, was launched by British Motor Corporation in 1956. They had sold the rights and tooling to Hindustan Motors for sale in India. So the company also declared a modest profit in 1959, finally. But by 1960, it was literally galloping ahead. Net sales had doubled and the gross profit margin had reached about 10%. And this is also when the government began to provide regular institutional support for the automobile industry. In 1959, the government constituted, put together really, a development council to review the problems of the automobile ancillary and transport vehicle industry. Then came up uh, the Automotive Component Manufacturers Association of India. Their job was to, and I quote, seek avenues for the fuller exploitation of the industry's skills and capabilities and also to involve itself as much as possible in the development of export markets for its members." Soon after, the Automobile Research Association of India came up in 1966. 
The objective of Automotive Research Association was to provide service to the industry by way of applied research in automotive engineering, product design and development, evaluation of automotive equipment and ancillaries, standardization and technical information for manufacture in India was now in full steam ahead. The protection of the automobile industry, well, a research really was a necessity because protection was about to end by 1967. It was initially designed for 10 years. So a tariff commission sat once again in 1966 to decide if protection had to be extended or if there was really sufficient condition for an extension of protection. Now, this tariff commission was um, tasked with looking into the question also about how to fix a fair selling price. This commission, the Tariff Commission of 1966, did recommend an extension of protection. The commission observed that even though the industry was in a fairly stable condition in terms of the number of manufacturers, none of these manufacturers made more than one basic model. The demand had not yet grown enough for the prospects of a company making several models with profit. Now, the period between 65, 1965 to 1977 was a fairly unremarkable one for the industry. Production increased only marginally. Unanticipated oil shocks of 1973 and 1979 created huge problems of demand. And it already compounded the messy situation created by high costs, heavy taxation, and general recessionary conditions in the economy. But that's sort of technical analysis. What did the middle class professionals think about the prospects of the small car? or the passenger car. The respectable middle-class professionals dismissed the idea. Even in 1972, when the government had finally approved a small car manufacturing project. We'd get into the details of that story very soon, in the next episode, really. But let us first hear from those who thought that a voluble and influential urban elite alone virtually arm-twisted the government into approving the small car projects. So these naysayers were convinced that the government did not carry out a rigorous cost-benefit analysis, that India did not need a small car at all. So what were the reasons the, the articulate middle-class professionals dismissed practically the idea of a small car. They advocated several compelling reasons. And I quote from an article, this, this um, attitude of the middle-class professional, I quote from an article by one K.S. Karnick in the journal Economic and Political Weekly. I'm not sure, but I suspect it was Kiran Karnick. He had given the name Kiran to an index used in the piece. Kiran Karnik is no longer alive to prove me right or wrong, but let us hedge an intelligent guess. So what were the reasons? The roads 
the article said, were not broad enough. Urban roads could simply not be extended. Indian cities are full. There's no way they could suffer uh, an extension of city roads. So since buses or public transport in general carried more people, these must be a priority. Unless, of course, city roads were made broader. It was presumed that all existing cities were exceedingly crowded and the roads simply could not be widened. Small car carried fewer passengers and that they would only choke the already narrow roads and eventually bring urban traffic to a standstill. So what's the next reason cars were a bad idea? Private cars. The next reason was that there was not sufficient parking space. A very large majority of cars would be used by uh, people who drive to office and then park their cars all day. So since most offices were located in valuable, small, scarce real estate and it would be converted into parking lots. It would essentially once again sort of run down the price of real estate or push the prices of real estate up. That was the economic cause. The article said, article by Mr. Karnik said why it should not be taken up. Then there's another indeed more compelling reasons that he had projected in this 1972 article. That was pollution. In fact, this is a part that I'd like to read at some length. Please hear me out. And I quote Karnik here. Pollution of the environment is not yet a commonly heard phrase in our country. And I'm talking about 1972. He says, though it is already a major problem in our metropolitan cities, the contribution of cars to this problem is substantial and is increasing as their numbers rise. One of the exhaust systems of each U.S. motor vehicle come to 1,600 libras of carbon, and, and he gives several kinds of statistics. And he says that uh, the number of pollutants uh, you know, sent out by Indian cars would probably be in larger quantities, or at least in comparable quantities. So he wrote that in order to counter the problem of, of pollution, Many countries were now considering adopting electric cars or cars with steam engines. Do remember how futuristic this article must have been. 50 years ago, he is projecting the possibility of an electric or a steam engine driven car. So broadly speaking, there were a couple of other compelling reasons. But broadly speaking, the intelligent middle class probably were against an expansion in the number of passenger cars or what they called people's car at the time for two or three basic reasons. One was that the city roads were already congested and cars would choke them up even more. The second was that it would occupy uh, the scarce parking space and thereby push up the prices of real estate. And three, it will substantially contribute to the rise in pollution in Indian cities and probably certainly in the Indian countryside in small towns. These were certainly not reasons which are easy to dismiss. They were compelling and powerful and forceful reasons, but certainly they were premature on many counts. We'll be talking about why and how the small car projects 
nonetheless begin to take off in the late 70s and early 80s with the onset of the Maruti project. But before that, before it took off, indeed, it started to fly in the 1980s. The Maruti project ran against a number of massive massive problems. We'll begin the next episode with considering some of those problems and then move to the stage where Maruti indeed begin to take off. That's it for the second episode of uh, the special series on the passenger car or small car dreams and aspirations of the Indian middle classes in the 20th century. In the last episode, I spoke about a dream that did not quite take off. In this episode, I spoke about the halting progress of the dream, slow, steady, but by no means spectacular. It's time, I suppose, for the dream to take off. And I look forward to the takeoff in the next episode.